In a moment, I want us to read a passage of Scripture, and uh, I was glad I wasn't preaching this morning, so thank you, Phil, for being on Rota for that. Um, Why did I say that? Well, uh, because one of these um, big events of which we've lived through this week, uh, and I asked Phil on Friday when we met, have you written your sermon? And he said, yes, I have, because he's uh, at the start of the week kind of uh, writes a sermon. And um, obviously the, the events uh, we got caught up in and uh, we, we want to respond to that. And I've been, Phil made reference to this this morning and, and it's, I guess it comes out a little bit in what I want to say in a moment, that um, in many of the tributes, the majority of the tributes we've heard uh, about the Queen, very little reflects what we have seen on that video or actually the, the deep-rootedness she had in, in Jesus. Uh, and yet, uh, if you have heard, of her Christmas, heard her Christmas broadcast, you'll know that it was always there, and much, much more so um, in the last 20 years, I guess. Her faith was deep and profound. I, I heard a, a short clip, I think it was of Tim Farron, when the Parliament were doing tributes, and he made reference as a fellow believer to the fact that the queen was such a a devout follower of Jesus. But it seems a little bit absent. And the reason I want to say this, not because I think you or or I am in error, but I wanted to draw us back to something in in John's gospel, because I think the other danger that we are... uh, we as a nation and a world are prone into falling in perhaps in this time is of being so encouraged to look at the queen, which is fine, and to see her as an example, which on one level is fine, but the, inf- the subtext seems to be, if only we were all as kind-hearted and uh, servant-hearted and as dutiful Wouldn't that be brilliant? And in many ways, yes. But without Jesus, it just becomes religious or try harder. And that isn't, it seems, who she was. I didn't know her, so that's a little presumptive. But that seems to be what's happening. I don't want to belittle her or her influence or malign any of her reputation, but it's interesting what is being conveyed about her. And I think faith was so, so deep. So I'd like us to read, in mind of, uh, mindful of that, something about, about Jesus and the gospel. And uh, I'd like it if we could, if you're happy to help me with this, we're going to read uh, the, the, what's called the prologue of John's gospel. But why am I doing this? Well, it it's a great passage. It's not Christmas, so it's nice to dust it off. Uh, and it's also, um, I, I've kind of, since uh, the end of my sabbatical, I'm kind of rereading John and thinking about John just in my own kind of devotion. So some of this stems from there. The trouble with example, and there's been a theological theme uh, in and around Jesus, as I said, we, we are called Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's true. Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. That there is an aspect of discipleship, absolutely, where we are called to see him as example and follow his ways, become more like him, to take on the character of Jesus. 
But if we just see it as, again, a try harder, we've missed the boat. The, the prologue reminds us of just how special he is. Of course, he's incarnated. He becomes flesh and blood. He is one of us. He's not some sort of um, pretend human being. But he is fully God and fully human, and he is the only Savior. So if you're happy to read it, we'll follow the words from the NIV through to verse 18. We'll read it together. If you just would prefer to listen to it, um, that is absolutely fine. So together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In the prologue, the beginning words, the setting, the overture, the announcement. Uh, the last night of the proms was cancelled. Uh, I don't know a lot about music, but I remember from my um, studies at school that an overture carries the themes of the whole symphony. Is that correct? Good. Starting an error would have been wrong. I remember acting in a performance um, it was quite entertaining, not me, but the performance of a, a Gilbert and Sullivan production of uh, HMS Pinafore. Sorry? Uh, it was a student thing. And uh, I was one of the... This is an aside. 
I got roped into it because um, I was in my s- end of my first year at university in Newcastle, and um, a mutual friend, kind of who was in it, kind of said, "We need some more uh, male singers because there are not very many male part, as, as in there weren't very many people in the production, but there were an awful lot of uh, of women in the production." And if you know the performance at all, the storyline, it's a kind of classic Gilbert and Sullivan. And uh, there's one bit where the, uh, the admiral's uh, sisters, cousins, and aunts come on stage. And there's a little line, and it goes, gaily tripping, lightly skipping, flock the maidens to the shipping. <laughs> and the reason I remembered that is because there were about 40 of them in the chorus. And they came on, and they was not lightly skipping. It was like this thunder of elephant, exactly. And there I was as a sailor in the back row somewhere. The overture, that's what I was talking about. In the introduction of, of that, you kind of heard all the kind of the melodies of the key themes of, of the whole performance. But obviously the performance expanded them and developed them. The prologue of John is like that, but I guess far better, because not only does John set the context and, and draw in and, and write large the big themes of all that's going to play out in the next 21 chapters, but there's a really clever aspect of it, because not only does the prologue say of what is going to happen in the gospel of Jesus, good news. But as you probably heard and know, that there's so many deep resonances back to the Old Testament, that John 1, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, has such strong echoes to the prologue of the Bible, Genesis 1. That in other words, this beautiful introduction of which we, are, uh, we have read kind of roots us back into this is God, but this is now God manifest. And I want to just speak, I think briefly, you know that's always a slight irony when I speak, but uh, I shall try and keep it, of, of briefly about three major themes that, that John introduces but get worked out of the gospel that kind of encompass in mind and in light of those prologue words I said about our own context right now. This afternoon I was at the memorial in town with the mayor and the canon bishop, the the vicar, and um, uh, the Catholic priest Father John, and we were praying and uh, there was the Honorable Philip Smith who uh, did the hip hip hoorays. But it was amazing to hear And also, I don't know if you caught the news yesterday, of the proclamation. I mean, great that it was televised. What a curious thing, seeing all the prime ministers and all those lawyers and judges and all standing behind their little uh, boundary line. It felt like they were in some sort of kind of museum. You know, stay behind the ropes. (laughs) But in in that, the the Lord Chancellor, I think it was Penny Morden, that was her role, I think, uh, she proclaimed, didn't she? She uttered and announced and declared there to be a new king. In the beginning was the word, 
that one of the major themes in the prologue and is in the gospel is the announcement, the declaration, the proclamation of the words, the logos, the revelation, the word of God. It's always been there. How did God create in Genesis 1? God spoke. Let there be light. And there was. When we begin to contrast uh, who we are and who God is, we can speak, we can declare someone out in cricket. The umpire says, out, and they are. The Lord Chancellor can declare, this is the king, and they are. But none of us can create by a word. None of us can take the nothing and make something. And in the arrival, as John has it for us, recorded in the gospel, that the light and the presence, the eternal one, is and is the word to be heard to be received, the one who creates and recreates. There's so many things. If you've, if you've ever read books and been around church long enough, you know there's whole kind of realms of depth that we could go in. But I told you I'd be brief. And I will be. The word declared. That God is the one who reveals himself. God is the one who takes the initiative. God is the one who says to all of humanity, if you seek to do this yourself, if you come up with ideas and speculation and philosophy and ideology and religious thought, you may kind of get something right, but it will be mostly way off beam. Because who I am is in one sense unknowable, speaking about God, not me, who I am is unknowable and is so surprising. I mean, look where the trajectory of the gospel gets to. Crucified. The eternal son of the father breathes his last. Who would have imagined that? To be the full and final and complete testament of who God is. But oh, so necessary. Because without this revealing, without the word spoken, without him revealing who he is, we would miss the mark by a mile. It's amazing, too, about the power of Jesus' words. We, we, we sung a song, didn't we? I speak the name of Jesus. It's amazing as you read through the gospel, the power of Jesus' words the demonized be free to the broken be healed to the adulteress go and sin no more I don't condemn you amazing how Jesus speaks and words of challenge to the religious to those who would stand against him so the word a deep theme that comes up again and again. The recreative, powerful, life-giving word of God. 
that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. If we want to know what the Father says, Jesus speaks it. One of the things Phil often comments, uh, as I've heard him, is in the Alpha Course, people kind of know there's a God. And maybe there's a spiritual understanding and kind of that Holy Spirit thing. Yeah, I can understand that, the sort of spiritual ether that we live in. But Jesus, without Jesus, we don't get it. Without Jesus, there is no gospel. Without Jesus, there is no spirit. Without Jesus, there is no coming to the Father. Full stop. It's about him, the word announced. A second major theme is, is that of life. Uh, life is one of, of John's core categories. And it's essential to who Jesus is and to those who follow him. You see, in the word becoming flesh, it's about God reaching out to embrace all humanity and all of creation again. He brings life, not only in the creation of life through the word, but in the restoration of life, which is broken and messed up and devastated. Did you hear it in verse 3 and 4? Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been been made in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind see like truth the word expressed the true revelation of god life is the vocation and mission of jesus and it's explicitly linked to fullness to the multifaceted vital nature of who God is to those he was sent to in the invitation to come and join. Isn't that astonishing? The fullness of life. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. How we need him. In a world where there is destruction of killing, of robbing of fullness, whether it's in disease or mental illness or disability, hunger, thirst, poverty, bitter division, violence and conflict, forced migration, pollution of the water, of the air, of the land, extinctions, injustice, cruelty, exploitation, slavery, humiliation, misery, mistrust, despair, and death, to name a few. It's the reality of the world now. And actually, all those descriptors are in the Gospels of the brokenness of our world and our situation. And yet, the life of faith is to trust the word, the logos, that none of these aspects of, of destruction and of life stolen and of of how life is decimated. By trusting in the word, we are declaring that those have, do not have the final word. I love, I think it was 
Tony Campolo, who at least introduced the phrase, I think, to me. It says, we live in a Good Friday world with Easter Sunday faith. In other words, we live in the broken still, yet knowing he's risen. Knowing that death is defeated. Violence is defeated. Satan is defeated. Cruelty is defeated. Slavery is defeated. Humiliation, think of all those words. They apply to Jesus in his experience and ours too. You know, when we declare our faith in Jesus, that he is the first word and the present word and the last word over all these things. And that as we commit to him, as we receive him, as we trust in him as the word made flesh, that commits us to enduring in life, of contending for the kingdom as opposed to that which robs and kills and destroys. Of course, Jesus did it in the small and the epic. As I heard about Queen Elizabeth in her 2016 Christmas address, just after I think she'd been to Ireland, she said, There's thousands of small acts of goodness can make a difference, even though the world's problems often seem too big to change. She said she drew strength from ordinary people doing extraordinary things. That in those ways that we act in Christ-likeness, we hold truth, the Word made flesh, because that is life. It's the way of Jesus. We see through the Gospel it's also costly and hidden often. So the word, life that he brings, and finally, it's no surprise, you can imagine the third one, love. The major theme, I suspect, you could say in John's gospel, again and again. Listen to 118. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God... And this is the most astonishing little phrase. And is in the closest relationship to the, with the Father has made him known. He's like an emissary. The closest to the Father makes him known. The best placed one to show us what almighty God is like is Jesus. Closest to the Father. And what does he reveal? This is amazing. Uh, you can rabbit this off because we are very good. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his... That should not but have life. Hold that verse in what we've just heard. The one Jesus who is closest in relationship to the Father... God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This love for the world springs from the heart of God. 
This love that Jesus embodies is the biggest revelation, most profound revelation in John's gospel. Love is inseparable from Jesus. Love is inseparable from his faith and indeed in the giving of his continuing spirit. The inspired drama by which we are beckoned in. John 14 and the the chapters that follow kind of paint this beautiful picture of what love looks like. The mutuality, if you love one another, love me, love the Father, love sister and brother, and begins to scope out the breadth and length and height and depth. He, and he, he manifests it in this most wonderful, enacted, prophetic thing where he gets a bowl of water and a towel and washes their feet. And he said, he, sh- in, he showed them the full of extent of his love. Humble service. But even those chapters are pointing towards an even greater event. The arrest and brutalizing and death of Jesus upon a cross. Which according to John enacts love. It's not a victory of Satan. It's not in John's gospel a defeat. but the glory of God fully revealed. And through it, he initiates a new family. What does he do after resurrection? He breathes his spirit into whom his followers and says, I now send you as I have been sent in love to the world. And yet John's gospel in our world, again to quote a few words, Experiences a lack of love, distorted love, wounded love, disappointed love, tragic love, failure in love, exploited, exploitative love, deceitful, betraying, one-sided, rejection of love, illusions of love, misunderstood love, the inability to love, hard-heartedness, and the refusal to love, humiliated love. An experience of us in a world that is broken and through the Gospels. And yet here is the greatest challenge of the Gospel, of the love that God brings, is to trust the love of Jesus and to respond in that love. The Word comes to bring life in the power of love. The Gospel calls us to a shock, and that is the decision to trust. Whenever we've been hurt, We find it difficult to trust. And yet the invitation and the beckoning of God is to trust in him. He is full of grace and truth and love. That Jesus was at the pointed end of the world's ability to turn love into brutality. The enemies of Jesus arrested him, tortured him, mocked him, vilified him, all those things. And the closest of his friends 
too. We know what fractured love is like, but that is not him. Love flows from the crucifixion, self-giving, self-emptying, freely, costly, life-giving, life-restoring love. John 12, 24, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many. That in Jesus, in his resurrection and giving of the spirit without measure, in this ongoing drama of loving, of being centered on being loved by Jesus, of abiding in him and the world loved by Jesus, that an astonishing promise 1232, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When I was preaching the other week on John 15, I was drawn to the very first words of Jesus in the gospel, 138. It's about the calling of the disciples. And it goes like this. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? The first words of Jesus, what do you want? And the the Greek scholars tell me that that's a plural. There's a sense of, of the epic scope of that. What do you want? What are you looking for? By the end of the gospel, the same question is posed rather than to the many and the masses to the specific and to the individual, to Mary Magdalene at the garden tomb. Whom are you looking for? There's something about this wonderful gospel that is for all but is honed down like a pinpoint, a laser, a spotlight to every person. Whom are you looking for? John, of all the Gospels, is concerned about us, about you and me. In the encounters with Jesus and in his teaching, the good shepherd calls you by name. He loves us. And in his resurrection, as he is risen, and that God is present by virtue of that he's alive, isn't he? Right now, he is with us by his spirit. conclusion of that must mean that in this very moment, in the reading of the gospel, in the hearing of what we've been experiencing tonight, in the moments of now, he invites us into the very real presence of Jesus in the one-to-one. Whom is it you are looking for? You have the words of eternal life. You are the way, the truth, and the life. For he loves us so very much because the Father loves us so very much. Sister and brother, we are in his presence now. We are loved by him. There's no envy in hearing about the beloved disciple, John, the author, whom Jesus kind of called the disciple he loved. 
It's for us too. In this week, I pray for all those who will be speaking on the international and the world stage, for the Archbishop of Canterbury and all those in churches like us, that we would honor a sister in Christ who got it. And we would see to where and to whom she points. Invited deeper and higher and wider forever into meaning and life and love. Let's pray.